This morning, I'm continuing a sermon series through the Old Testament book of Jonah. It's a masterfully told story, a lot of relevance to our lives today. It is not just a story that gets told in Sunday school classes around the world. And last week, we just looked at the first three verses of Jonah, talking about how God calls us to find our identity and purpose in relationship to him, and how he also calls us to share his message with others, and how so often, just like Jonah, we turn the other way. Instead of saying yes to him and submitting ourselves to that and to that call in our lives, we go and find our identity and purpose in other things in this world and go and decide we're too scared or whatever reason we don't want to share his message with the world. Uh, this morning, I'm going to read the whole of chapter 1, starting again, reading verses 1 through 3, and then continuing all the way to verse 17. And we're going to look at what wound up happening as a result of Jonah's disobedience and what that has to do with our lives today. So let me read Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, open our ears, open our hearts. Help us to hear and understand what this means, what it meant to its original hearers, and what it means for us today, Lord. Reveal yourself through this text, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you weren't here last week, I did mention that there's debate about whether to take this, what genre you're supposed to read Jonah as, whether it's meant to be history or whether it's meant to be a parable. Uh, commentators are divided on this. Jonah was a historical person. We read about him in 2 Kings 14, that he was a prophet who lived around 780 B.C. during the reign of King Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom. And so either this is a story from his life or it's just a parable, a story that was written about him, using him as a, as a figure, basically, to communicate a deeper theological truth. 
So whichever it is, we're going to focus on what does this mean? What did it mean? It's an original context. What does it mean for us today? And basically, it's meant to hold up a mirror. Originally to Israel, the first hearers of this, and now to us today. It's meant to hold up a mirror to us, I believe. And so I'm going to hold up that mirror to you this morning as we look at Jonah chapter 1 and four themes that I think are relevant for us today from this passage. The first theme that I see is this. It's the omnipresent, omnipresent sovereignty of God. The omnipresent sovereignty of God, or the sovereign omnipotence, if you prefer that. In this passage, Jonah the prophet is called by God to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was a neighboring, uh, it's a city, capital city of Assyria. And Assyria was one of the enemies of Israel. And they attacked Israel often. And here, God sends the prophet to go be his, his mouthpiece to tell Nineveh to give up their violence, that judgment is coming upon them if they do not repent. And Jonah, instead of going to Nineveh, catches the ship in the exact opposite direction to get as far away as he can. But, of course, we see that he can't really escape from God, can he? That even if he turns away from the face of God, he cannot escape the spatial presence of God, that God is sovereign over everything, and he is omnipotent, and he's not letting Jonah get away. And he sends a storm because of Jonah's disobedience to prevent him from going where he's trying to go. And then when Jonah gets thrown overboard, God provides a great fish to swallow him up. In other words, you can try all you want to run away from God. You can curse him. You can say he doesn't exist. You can hate him. You can get angry with him. But you cannot run away from him. You can turn away from the face of God, but you cannot escape from his presence. Psalm 139, which we read in the opening this morning, puts this very well. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Even if I sail on a ship in the opposite direction from you, from where you've called me to go, and hide myself below deck in the darkness, even there you will find me. God is omnipresent. God is sovereign. In those days, they believed that there were gods over different areas. You know, if you were, were, lived in one nation, you had your own god. Other nations had their own gods. That's why the sailors are telling Jonah, call out to your god. Maybe your god's the one responsible for this. And what does Jonah say? He said, when they say, what god do you worship? He says, I worship the god of the heavens, the one who made and rules over the land and the sea. In other words, I don't worship a territorial god. I worship the omnipresent god, the sovereign god over all of this. And at that, they were greatly terrified. God is sovereign over everything. Remember what Jesus said? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. There's a sovereign element to God's character that even the death of a sparrow he sees. Now, I could probably spend the rest of my life trying to communicate this to you, but I'm not going to delve any deeper because the sovereignty of God is certainly very mysterious trying to understand why things happen. But for the purposes of Jonah, I just want to leave it at this, that God is omnipresent, God is sovereign. There is no escaping from him. As much as you might want to try to turn from his face, to go your own way, you cannot escape from our God. 
And then, just to make it a little worse, second theme that seems to show up here in Jonah 1 is the universality of sin. For Jonah, who is trying his best to get away from God, we see not only is God omnipresent and sovereign, but we also see the universality of sin communicated in this passage. That we have the prophet of God being called to share a message of judgment and repentance to this wicked nation. And yet, what do we see? Who's the worst one in chapter 1? It's not the pagan sailors. It's not the Ninevites. It's the prophet of God. He's the one who looks worse than everyone else. He's the one who won't even cry out to God. All the sailors are crying out to their gods, trying to figure out a way to, 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 they recognize it's some sort of divine punishment or divine discipline or something, and they're crying out, trying to be saved. They ask Jonah to cry out. Jonah won't even cry out because he knows. He knows it's no use. He's already running from God. God's not going to listen to him if he says, God, can you stop the storm? He knows. He knows that he is the one. Even though he is the prophet of God, he's supposed to be the holy man. He comes out looking the worst in this chapter. Sin is basically running away from God as the center of your life, right? Just like Jonah, running away, not living your life for him as God, but putting someone else or something else on the throne, living for something else, worshiping something else, or living for yourself. And it's a universal thing. Romans 3, 19 to 24, Paul puts it this way. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So metaphorically speaking, we're all in the same boat before God, right? Pun intended. We're all in the same boat before God. No one is above anyone else. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The prophet, the Ninevites, the pagan sailors on the boat, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jonah is not some holy man come to deliver a message that doesn't apply to him. He needs to repent and believe. He needs the forgiveness of God. He needs his grace and mercy, just like everyone else in the story. And you look at what the sailors do in this passage. Again, you think metaphorically if this is a parable, right? They're in a storm that is going to kill them. And first they try religion, crying out to whatever God they can think of to save them. And that doesn't work. And then they try their own works to throw the cargo overboard, to swim and row back to shore. But that doesn't work either to save them. There's only one way to be saved in this boat. And that is to cry out to the true God, the one true God to save them. Again, if you take this as a parable, it's communicating. We are all in the same boat. No one is above anyone else. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. We've all rebelled against a holy God. We've all fallen short of his standard. And religion won't save us. Good works won't save us. Our own efforts won't save us. We're in need of God's grace and mercy. One of the major themes that I see in Jonah as we're going to go through is, I think, 
again, the person who wrote this story, if it's meant to be a parable, is trying to communicate to Israel, trying to communicate to Israel how they have looked down on the nations, thought themselves better than those around them, and how wrong that is, how they've forgotten the grace of God that is over them, the mercy of God that's over them. It's a great passage from Deuteronomy 6 about this, when Moses says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you, a land with large flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Isn't that great? He's telling the Israelites, listen, God is bringing you into this promised land and you are going to be blessed beyond measure. And I know what's going to happen. Over time, you're going to start to think that you earned it, that you deserved it, that it's yours, that it wasn't a gift from God, that it wasn't grace, his grace and mercy. And as he warns them, don't forget, this is a gift. It's grace. And I think Jonah, this book, part of the reason, part of the purpose behind it is to call them out for this, that they have forgotten that everything that there's is grace, it's mercy. It's, they can't look down on the Ninevites. They can't look down on these other nations the way they do, that they all need grace and mercy. Have you ever done the same? 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says this, who makes you different than anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Do you understand what he's saying there? It's the same thing. Everything that you have is a gift from God. Your health. Did you earn that or were you given that as a gift from God? If you have a home, if you have money in the bank, if you have a family Anything that you have is a gift of his grace to you. Why do you boast as if somehow it's yours when it's all a gift? This call on Jonah to go and share this message, and he decides he doesn't want to, and we're going to find out later why, and part of it has to do with this attitude of superiority that he has, this lack of compassion that he doesn't think the Ninevites deserve the grace and mercy of God, forgetting that he doesn't deserve it either, but God gave it to him freely. Some have said that sharing your faith is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's all it is. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Or as Paul put it in Ephesians 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So in this passage, we see, first and foremost, the omnipresent sovereignty of God. There's nowhere that Jonah can go to escape from God. And secondly, we see the universality of sin. It's not that Jonah's the good guy and the Ninevites are the bad guys. It's that they are all in the same boat, metaphorically speaking, before a holy God. They cannot save themselves by their own religion. They cannot save themselves by their own efforts. They're all in need of a Savior. Now, about to get even worse. Ready? Third theme we see in Jonah 1 is this, the harmful effect of our sin on others. Not only is sin universal, but there's no such thing as a private sin. There's no such thing as 
a sin that does not have effect on others. You know, last week I talked about how God created us to find our identity and purpose in him, but we all, so many of us try to find our identity and purpose in other things in this world, but it's not just about us. It has impact on others. Jonah's rebellion is not just something that has consequences for him. It has consequences for Nineveh, because he's supposed to go talk to them about their sin. It has consequences on the pagan sailors in the boat who are now in the storm that is not of their own doing, fearing for their life, throwing their cargo overboard. And it's never more poignant than you have these sailors above deck crying out to their gods in the storm, panicking for their lives. And where's Jonah? He's asleep down below. What a great picture again of what so often happens in our sin, you know, oblivious to the impact it's had on others. There's no such thing as a private sin. There's a great book of prayers called The Valley of Vision. I highly encourage you to get a copy if you don't have one. It's a book of Puritan prayers, and the Puritans had a different way of writing than we, did, we do today, a different way of seeing things. And there's one prayer. Uh, this is part of the prayer. It says, The Searcher of Hearts. It is a good day to me when thou givest me a glimpse of myself. Sin is my greatest evil, but thou art my greatest good. I have cause to loathe myself and not to seek self-honor, for no one desires to commend his own dunghill. My country, family, church fare worse because of my sins. Read that one again while I take a sip of water. Now, certainly that's the first time you've ever heard dunghill in a prayer, I'm guessing. But that last line in particular, it's a haunting line. My country, family, church fare worse because of my sins. Now, he's not saying that like George Bailey in a wonderful, It's a Wonderful Life, that everyone would be better off if I had never been born. It's not what he's communicating here. It's, a, it's not a cry for pity or sympathy that someone would say, no, 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 don't be so hard on yourself, you know? You're not so bad. You're a good kid. You're a good guy. It's, this is not what that is, I don't think. This is an honest admission that our sin has consequences. Not just for us, but for those around us. It's not saying our li- everyone around us is worse because we exist. It's saying because of our sin. I began pastoring this church in 2006 at the ripe age of 30. And I did such a stellar job of that that after a couple of years, we had to hire an outside mediator to come in because I had made such a mess of things with my leadership. And we went through a hard season, myself, my family, the elders, their families, trying to work through our issues. My sins, particularly my struggles with dealing with conflict, my struggles with communicating well with people, dealing with things in a timely manner, et cetera, et cetera. My sins threatened to destroy the church, threatened to destroy my family. People left wounded because of my poor leadership. And 
somehow we made it through by the grace of God, and somehow I'm standing up here today, not because of anything I've done, but because of the grace and mercy of our God, first and foremost, because of the grace and mercy of my wife and my family. Secondly, the grace and mercy of the elders, their families, and the other leaders of this church. But my country, my family, my church fare worse because of my sins. And I can say that honestly without, again, this is not a woe is me. This is not anything like that. It's an honest and frank admission of my sin has consequences, not just for me, but for those around me. Nobody has any idea how many times my wife has had to pick herself up off the mat, so to speak, right? To come back again and again and again to be full of grace and mercy. Sometimes I have to look back on my journal. I I journaled a lot through those years, and sometimes I have to look back as painful as it is to remind myself so I won't forget. And I regularly do marriage counseling too. And one of the most important goals I have as a counselor is to encourage spouses to not get defensive, but to truly listen, to resist the urge to argue back, to prove that they're right, to convince their spouse of all the things they have done wrong, but to truly listen when their spouse tells them something they've done that's hurt them. And that as, as uncomfortable as it might make them to not look away, to not rationalize, to not minimize, to not blame shift, to not try to explain it away, but to listen humbly until they understand the depth of how the other person has hurt them. Not so you can feel horrible about yourself and think that everything's your fault, but so there might be true repentance and reconciliation and peace. Jonah is learning a very hard lesson here, and I don't even know if he's learning it, but we're learning it watching him, that sin has consequences, not just for you, but for those around you. All these sailors are experiencing this storm because of Jonah and his disobedience. And again, metaphorically speaking, there are many storms that get brought into the lives of those who we love because of our sin. That a self-centered decision to disobey God, just like Jonah did, can set into motion all kinds of, all kinds of consequences. Think about David in 2 Samuel 11. You know the story of David? He's the king, the man after God's heart. And then what happened in chapter 11, verse 1? In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Think about the chain of events that got set off by that one, that David is supposed to be out with his men on the battlefield, but he decides to stay home. He wakes up, it says, or he gets out of bed at some time in the evening. And he sees a woman bathing, Bathsheba. And he sleeps with her. And then he has her husband killed to try to cover it up. And then, pretty soon after that, his family's going to fall apart. Rape, incest, murder, suicide, betrayal, insurrection, war, exile. Israel becomes split into the northern and southern kingdom. 
Do you think if David knew what was going to happen, maybe he'd go back and make a different choice? <laughs> My challenge to you, it's not even an encouragement, it's a challenge, is to look your sin full in the face that Jonah and the way his sin impacted others is a mirror held up to you this morning. To look your sin full in the face and not to look away. To recognize that it's your anger, your greed, your lust, your sin that has harmed the ones you love, your abuse, your affair that damaged your spouse, wounded your children, your cruel words, your cruel actions, your disobedience. What would it be like to not minimize, rationalize, shift the blame, explain it away, but to just feel the full weight of that? Why? Am I just trying to make you feel bad this morning? Is that all I'm trying to do? There's a reason for this. It doesn't end in point three, thankfully, right? Consider what Paul wrote to the Corinthians here. He said, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, or if I caused you sorrow by my sermon, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret but worldly sorrow brings death. It's a good way of putting it. Thanks, Paul, for putting words in my mouth. There's worldly sorrow that leads to death, where it's just, woe is me, and I feel terrible and crushed, and that's it, and I give up. And then there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to life, that leads no regret, that leads to forgiveness and grace and comfort and healing. That's godly sorrow. That's where I'm leading you. By God's grace, that's hopefully where God's going to lead you today. Because think of Paul in Romans 7, after he talked about how all the things he wished he could do, he, he's not doing. The things he wants to do, he struggles to do. He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So yeah, there's point four. Not just sin and its effect on others, but the saving discipline of our God doesn't end in point three. Thank God. Because again, it is Mother's Day, right? And nothing says motherhood like worrying that you've irreparably harmed your children by your, <laughs> by your sin, right? But God is bigger than our sins. Amen? Do you believe it? Do you believe it? God is bigger than your sins. His grace, his mercy is bigger than your failures, than your shortcomings. And so God sends a storm, but it's not the punishment of a vengeful God. It's the discipline of a loving father. It's not the punishment of a vengeful God. That's not what the storm is. It's the discipline of a loving father. He won't let Jonah follow his sin to his and others' destruction. He's going to send a storm not to kill Jonah, but to wake him up, to wake him up to the chaos that he's causing, to turn him around, to get him to repent. And the truth is it often does take storms to wake us up and turn us around. As C.S. Lewis put it, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
Now, not all suffering is discipline, of course, but sometimes, sometimes God allows suffering to discipline us, to wake us up, to turn us around. Hebrews 12 puts it very well. It says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I think that's a shout out to Jesus there in the first line and how he resisted sin all the way to death on the cross for us. You have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. And for what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. See that last line again there? God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Come on, everybody. Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. God is disciplining you. He's not punishing. He's treating you as a son or a daughter who he loves, that you may share in his holiness. The only way that Jonah is going to be saved is by what? It's by submitting to the storm, submitting to the Father's discipline. It's not going to kill him despite his sin. It's going to save him. That God is rescuing him from his own sin, from his own destruction, from the consequences of his sin on others by bringing this storm to turn him around, to bring him to repentance. And as Jonah goes into the water, God saves him by this great fish. And it's meant to point us, it's not just the story again of Jonah, but like everything in the Old Testament, it points us to Jesus. Matthew 12, some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to Jesus, teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation ask for a miraculous sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Again, sin is universal. Our sin has consequences on others, but God is greater than your sins. Amen? Do you believe it? Do you believe that his grace and his mercy is greater than your screw-ups? It's greater than your failures? Yes, our families, our church, our country fares worse because of our sins. Not because of us, but because of our sins. But God is greater than our sins. Jonah was not killed when he went into that ocean. Because Jesus was going to die for him. Jesus was going to die for us. Jesus says this story of Jonah points to Jesus. Three days, three nights in the belly of the earth. Dying for our sins. That our sins would not be the end. That God would not punish us but just discipline us out of love. The punishment fell on Jesus. The discipline is given to us out of love. To free us from sin. To make us more like him. Jonah had to submit himself to the Father. If he was going to live, he needed to be thrown into that ocean. And instead of finding death, he found the mercy of God. 
And I encourage you this morning, the only way, the only way is to submit yourself again to the Lord, to the Father who loves you, to his discipline. He's not killing you. He's not punishing you. He's just disciplining you. Submit to him and he will bring you life. I'm going to close with another portion of a prayer from the Valley of Vision. It said this, Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, and the exceeding wonder of grace. Amen. Leave that up there, please. And as the worship team comes up, just spend a minute in silence. Pour out your heart to the Lord. Confess any sin you need to. And trust in this, that he is greater than your sin, that his grace is greater. And then we'll respond in worship.